0: at writerwriterpantsonfire.com. Time is of the essence in an emergency. The first 48 hours are crucial to solving a crime. How long would it take for your family to access important information if you're not there to give it to them? The ability to track locations, spending, who you spoke to, who you texted, any social media interactions, and more are vital information that can help any investigation. With Help You Find Me, you can easily create an If I Go Missing folder. You can use the template on Help You Find Me's website to get started. You can share it with friends and family and edit their permissions so they only see what they need to see. It takes about three minutes to create a fully secure file that is potentially life-saving. Your data is safe, encrypted, and protected. Only those you share it with can get access to it. At Writer Writer Pants on Fire, we have partnered with Help You Find Me to help you create your own digital secure, if I go missing, file. Go to helpyoufind.me forward slash writer and use the template to create your own file. Welcome to the Haunting, Unearthly, and Paranormal Stories podcast. Each week will be a different event, whether paranormal or some other strange and unexplained happening, maybe even a haunting located near you. These events and stories have been given to us by the people who experienced them in their own lives. These stories will take you to the depths of fear and back again. You will learn of places haunted by spectrals and other shadows, ghost investigations, the demonic happenings and possible possessions. Dream Homes Taken Over by Paranormal Events. Within these stories, you will question yourself and locations you have been to, times you caught movement out of the corner of your eye, or thought you did. You may question locations you currently visit and begin to wonder if those noises you hear are truly the building settling, or someone from a past life walking down the hallway towards you. These weekly journeys will lead us down deserted roads, into the deep, and dark forests, and through the doors of buildings we should not enter. Pull up a chair as we take a step into the unknown on the haunting, unearthly, and paranormal stories podcast. Find us at HUPspodcast.com. Contact us at HUPspodcast at Yahoo.com. Believe the stories you choose to believe or believe in none. It is your choice.
1: We're here with Sabine K. Bergman and Savani Babu, who are the founders of Hidden Compass, which is a women-founded media company. So why don't we just start with you guys telling us about Hidden Compass, what it is and what you
2: do? excited to be here. We're excited to talk about Hidden Compass. Hidden Compass is a women-founded media company. We're ending the era of junk food journalism by empowering audiences to unite with the humans, causes, and possibilities behind award-winning stories.
3: What that means in practice is that we have an online quarterly magazine of exploration. We have launched a podcast We have launched a online speaker series, and we have what we call the Alliance, which is like a modern society of exploration, essentially. And all of these elements are showcasing, as Savani said, award-winning stories, but also celebrating the partnership between us as a publisher, our contributors, and our audience, and kind of inviting our audience in to get to know... The people behind the stories, to be able to support them directly, and to be able to participate in what we do as a company.
1: I love it. I struggle (laughs) as an author. Junk media is the way to put it. I have been kind of railing internally and not always internally, if I'm being honest. You know, I'm an author. I write traditionally. I'm very fortunate to be able to make a living this way. But I have a lot of frustration with the elements of marketing that have no substance, yet appears to actually be what works and sells books. So I become very frustrated at the fact that I apparently have to make a TikTok video in order to really function in the publishing world today. And I'm 42. And I don't really feel like dancing or putting on makeup or participating in some of these arenas that we're being told matter. So I kind of like your ideas about creating a new platform, a new method of exploration, but also just kind of a refutation of that idea of the attention span shortening of
3: the world. It's funny that you say that this is what works and what sells books. It's one strategy that can work to a certain extent. What Savani and I talk about all the time is that everyone is trying the same strategy. To a large extent, we are ignoring people like I think all three of us who love deeper, funny, challenging, nerdy intellectual stories that don't treat us like people who have five-second attention spans. Behind the founding and the running of Hidden Compass are like these two dual frustrations on my part. Like one is as a writer. Like I wanted places to publish stories that weren't shoehorned into a simplified version of reality. But then on the other side, as a reader, I was like, that's not the kind of stuff I want to read every day. It's not good for me. It kind of wigs me out. And I think a lot of people feel the same way.
2: Right. I mean, that's, that's exactly why we founded Hidden Compass was as writers, as readers, we felt like we were being pulled in a direction that, frankly, we didn't want to go in and that we didn't think was healthy and that we didn't think was necessary. And we believed that there should be a place for those longer, difficult, nuanced stories that we wanted to read as much as we wanted to write. Figured if we built it, we couldn't be the only people who wanted that. If we build it, perhaps they will come. I
1: have fallen victim myself to the scroll and going through reels and just looking for that next thing and getting that little rush of adrenaline when, you know, a cat misses its jump or a person falls down (laughs) on the ice in front of their house. And I'm just like, why am I doing this? Like, I, I will hate myself for spending time going through looking for that next thing that's going to make me laugh or like whatever it is. And I have found it affecting my brain. There's no doubt about that. The way that I process information, I do have a harder time sitting down and reading. I do have a harder time saying I'm going to watch an entire movie. You may or may not be familiar with a book called The Shallows. No, I haven't. No, I don't know that one. Okay. I think that you would greatly enjoy this. Came out a while ago. I think they have updated it. It was by Nicholas Carr. It's called The Shallows. What the internet is doing to our brains. A very compelling book about your brain actually being rewired. About, you know, the endless scroll. About skimming about how you aren't processing large chunks of text any longer. And I don't uh, tag it entirely on the internet. Uh, Obviously there are plenty of wonderful places where you can do long form reading and interact on a more meaningful level on the internet. However, again, this was originally published in 2010. So the title kind of reflects that, but there is a real impact on your brain and in your processing, your language and your language and comprehension processing. When you are Mm -hmm. simply pushing for that next little adrenaline boost, what I do is read. That's what I do. I sit down and I read and Mm -hmm. then I write. And the longer I participate in little 100 calorie snack packs for my brain.
2: My brain is eroding. Like there's no doubt in my mind. And what's been so interesting to me throughout this whole process of founding Hidden Compass and clarifying what our mission is and how we talk about it are the parallels between media, the internet and, and junk food and food. And so we drew heavily on... The farm to table movement when we started thinking about what Hidden Compass is, because there is this parallel with junk food, right? It's out there. We all know it's out there. If you have it every once in a while, it's probably not going to kill you. But if it's all you're consuming, it's not going to end well. And it's the same thing with this type of media that is bite size, that is designed to give you that dopamine hit, designed to keep you coming back for more without really forcing you to engage with it in a meaningful way.
3: But the exciting thing too is to, in looking at that parallel between food and media, right? I looked at the past of what happened in the food industry, right? You know, for centuries, food was just by nature, seasonal, handmade, local, organic, all things. And then there was this era of the commercialization of food Mm -hmm. and processed food just started booming. Then there was this shift of people really caring about the quality of what they put in their bodies, willing to do the research, willing to invest more resources into thoughtful choices. And I think we're in the same place with media. I think there is this moment that's happening right now where people are starting to think about what they put in their minds, Mm. the way that we thought about what we were putting in our bodies. And that gives me such excitement and hope. Right. Because when Savani and I entered this industry, everyone told us it was dying. Yes. And I think it's at an inflection point. I think we're at this moment that is so exciting. And this could be the moment when there is a shift towards different kind of media and it might look totally different in 20, 30 years or maybe even two years. Right. And it requires
2: a lot of creative thinking to figure out how to make it work when on the monetary side, it's evolved. Clickbait drives content. And the reason it does that is because the way that internet advertising works and the way that publications make money isn't on the quality of the content. It's on how much of it they can get people to consume. And so in order to make that shift, it requires publications, media companies, businesses to think creatively about how they can afford to run their company and do the things that they want to do and pay writers what they deserve to be paid and photographers and artists and do it in a way that allows them to produce the kind of content that they can actually be proud of and that is nourishing and healthy and mind expanding and that's been such a big part of our mission at Hidden Compass is to figure out how to make this work an industry where the internet and the way that internet advertising has developed is what's driving content how do we take a step back and rethink that and figure out how we can successfully run a business without falling into that trap.
1: Mm, I could not agree more. Uh, I love the parallel to food. I tell people often, I was a teenager in the 90s And I live in the Midwest. Like we drank pop. Like that's what you drank. You did And like, when I think about it now, it makes me feel so gross. That's what you drank. That's what you had with meals. That's what you drank when you were thirsty. If you were an athlete, you could drink Gatorade. But most of the time you were drinking pop. I think about that now and it makes me feel sick. I I don't drink it. I drink water. I remember when bottled water became something you could buy. Mm-hmm. Everyone made fun of people that drank bottled water, at least where I'm from. Why would you pay for water? You know, <laughs> like it was just, right. it was so bizarre that people would drink bottled water the change happens. Right. And I would love to see it continue to happen, uh, especially in the world of media. I want to go back to what you said about entering this world of media and publishing and long form writing, And having uh, people iterate to you that this was a dying industry. Can you expand
2: on that a little bit? Sabine and I both grew up kind of in that era of National Geographic. We both had the giant stacks in our respective childhood homes of National Geographic and Time and Life and all of these magazines where long-form media was the norm. A lot of our mentors and the people we looked up to in this industry had also sort of come of age in that time. And when we got into this business and they became, you know mentors and friends, so many of them were lamenting the loss of what they call this golden age of media, particularly related to travel journalism, and about how it was never going to be that way. And travel journalism was dying because it was all about listicles. and that type of short piece content that does what, what we've been talking about, it's, enge- it's engineered to do. We hit a point, Sabine and I, uh, where we had this question of, well, do we continue in this industry that everyone says is dying? Do we accept that this industry is in fact dying? And if not, what do we do about it? And for us, we looked at it and we didn't have that nostalgia for a time in our careers that looked very different because we were new to the industry. And so we could look at it and see what might be an opportunity where, you know, folks that we absolutely adore were focusing on what they'd lost. And we had
3: this moment, kind of a forced opportunity really. I mean, we couldn't look backwards because to a certain extent they were right that this print model right. has been disastrous. It's been really painful actually to see friends and colleagues who were editors at larger publications, storied publications get let go because the editorial teams are being cut down. It's been horrible to see how fact-checking departments have been cut. We talk about optimism and hope, and that's definitely a huge part of the story, but there are parts of the story too of just sadness. But it does mean that that decision to take the print business model and try and superimpose it on the internet. And then when that fails to start selling user information and targeting advertising and kind of scrambling to make money in other ways. I mean, National Geographic sells furniture and wine now Yeah. most of their money is made through TV programs. They've cut many of the publications. And so obviously that isn't working, but at the same time, we think, We're in the age of the internet, which means that we're in an era where readers have greater access than they ever have in the history of publishing. I mean, the internet could be leveraged to access this participatory nature of travel journalism that has never been tapped into before. And so I feel both sadness for everything that's happening, but also this drive to move towards a vision of what this could be.
2: Right. I mean, for us, this always felt more like an industry in transition rather than an industry that was dying, that there were these opportunities if you could come in and look at it with a different perspective. And it's hard for big publications to do that, right? It's National Geographic is a big ship. It is very hard to turn a big ship. So these publications that have been struggling and have made choices that have affected frankly, the editorial quality of what they're putting out. One of the big issues with National Geographic and internal conflict uh, has been with the television network being what brings in a lot of money and the quality of what's being aired on that television network and whether it meets the standards of the National Geographic Society and whether it meets the standards of the, the magazine. And so there are these internal conflicts that bigger publications and bigger media companies are having. And that was where Hidden Compass was at a little bit of an advantage. Actually, I'd say it's more than a little bit of an advantage in that we're small. Mm-hmm. We're small and we can afford to do things differently and try things out and experiment. And our hope is that when other companies and see that it can be successful to do it a different way, they find their own ways to do it differently. Right? We don't think that we are setting the only example of how this can be done. But we hope that with, you know, some publications, we're just showing people that it can be done and it can be done differently. And we don't have to drive content the way we have been. It doesn't have to be a quantity over quality game, that it can be quality over quantity, that there is a market for that, that people actually want that and that it ultimately can be successful. I love so much everything that you're saying especially when you're talking about, like, as an
1: example, National, National Geographic. And when you're talking about, like, their TV channel and questions of whether or not some of the content that is being pushed out is up to the standards. I think that, and I'm not speaking specifically of National Geographic, but in general, man, standards have lowered. I mean, <laughs> I struggle as a consumer, not just a writer. I struggle as a consumer to find things that interest me. I struggle to find things that are well done, well made, well put together, well delivered. The narrative has to be what I need it to be. And that is where my writer side comes in. So much of everything that I interact with ends up disappointing me. And I do think that that is why the depth is not there. The quality Mm -hmm that I used to be able to access. And yes, you're right. When you have more invested in printing out a magazine and it has glossy photos and color pages, it's expensive for you to produce it. You're not putting all the content in there. You are making sure that what you're selling is worth what you're asking people to pay for. When you have unlimited links that you can just throw up. Yeah, you're right quantity is the name of the game and quality isn't even a word I feel like we use anymore.
3: When we tell people that we only publish 20 stories a year, their jaws drop. I'm sure that was a thoughtful decision on our part. 40 to 50% of the stories we publish every year win awards for the best travel journalism. And that's because we only publish great stories. You know, we have in-depth conversations in our editorial meetings about what is this contributing to the global conversation. And it's this focus on quality and award-winning stories, but also raising the bar for our audiences and saying, we're not going to dumb this down for you. We're going to challenge you with the content. And we're also going to challenge you to meet the writers and photographers and artists behind the bylines. In 2020, we became the first media company in the world to publish profile pages and fundraising campaigns for every storyteller that we publish. And this is on top of the rates that we pay them. So we thought what would happen if we invited readers to support good storytelling? It has been so amazing to see people rise to that occasion and to prove wrong this idea that readers don't care, that people want free content, that people don't want to pay attention. And the growth in readership, we now have tens of thousands of readers. The growth in financial support for storytellers is proving that wrong, that people don't care. They do.
2: Right. They do care. They want to know who is behind the content that they're consuming, the stories that they're reading. And this goes back to that food model that we've drawn so much inspiration from. And and I talked a bit, and Sabine talked a bit about farm-to-table And that was that shift, right? People wanted to know, they wanted to re-engage with their food in a modern way, right? We were never going back to being subsistence farmers, but people wanted to know where their food is coming from, and they wanted to know who's preparing it and how it's being made. And we took those concepts and we applied them to what we do in journalism and exploration and storytelling and started introducing people to the folks behind the content that they were consuming, behind the stories. It's been an interesting challenge. I mean, definitely our readership has risen to that challenge. Part of what has been fun and also challenging at times has been asking writers to step out of the shadows and to step out from behind the byline because Sabine and I dealt with this too as as journalists. We're used to, we write a story, our name is out there, it's on it, but that's kind of the extent of our interaction with folks who read it. We don't usually get the opportunity as writers and journalists to actually put ourselves out there and share more of ourselves in the context of a single publication. And so that opportunity on the other side of it, from the journalist side of it, has also been really interesting and it's been really fun to see the journalists also step up to that challenge and engage with their audiences, and talk about the work that they do more broadly, rather than just about the story, but what they're passionate about, and what drives them to tell a story, and that's what people are responding to. They're responding to that connection
3: with those Mm. journalists. You know who I'm thinking of, Siv, is Edme von Rein, who is this incredible photojournalist. She does conflict photojournalism in the Middle East, and she is an incredible journalist and reporter, and is not used to talking about herself
2: Mm -hmm. or writing
3: about herself. And us being Hidden Compass, we said, we're going to have a profile page for you. You're going to be on video. We're going to have photos of you and your bio and everything. And we want this story to have a really strong element of your story and your narrative. And she said that was really challenging for her. And it's one of, I hate to say this because all of the stories we publish are my favorites, but it's one of my favorites that we've published recently. And it is this woven narrative of her work as a conflict photojournalist in the Middle East and her experiences dog sledding in Norway. (laughs) 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 Yeah. It seemed like these two disparate experiences
2: that should not work woven together in a story, but they do so beautifully because they're both very much a part of her.
3: And I love that this story does what a lot of the stories... That we publish do, which is to humanize journalists and yes, I think I, that that is something that is so necessary right now I think we talk about media we talk about journalism but how many people can name a journalist yeah. you know who aren't in this industry and so to be able to give the general public that opportunity to see the human beings behind stories and these are stories of exploration. You know, I think it's harder in, in news to do the same sort of thing because it's polarized in a lot of ways that exploration journalism isn't. This is an important step for people to be able to put faces and names and voices onto the people who are creating the stories that we read every day. I think it's
1: really interesting the, the crossover to fiction authors, authorship in general. I can tell you every author that I know they can write four five hundred thousand words a year. You ask them to write a 30-word bio about themselves. And they're like, <laughs> uh, uh, right. <laughs> like, I mean, it is it is yeah. the hardest part of what we do. I love, too, the idea of taking this person that is behind the story and making them a full 3D human being. I think yes. one of the things that I resent, and I do use the word resent, is that as an author, I have to market myself. I'm not just selling my books anymore. I have Mm -hmm. to market who I am and and literally market my face and making these videos and all of these things like that. But the way that you're doing it is different. You're not asking your journalist to do a dance on TikTok, like with their cat, you know, no. I mean, like there's depth there. And if someone were to ask me and, and people do, don't get me wrong, but if someone were to do an in-depth interview with me about my work, I would be like, yeah, I am all over this. Right. But right. I'm yeah. Not doing like the towel drop on Instagram, like for a lot of. Times.
2: But it's like, <laughs> and it's so funny that you say this because this has been a challenge for me and Sabine when we started Hidden Compass. It was a side project. We had our freelance careers. We were both full time freelance journalists. We were traveling the world, and we thought Hidden Compass would be this little side journal publication that we would put out every quarter and it would just be this little thing that lived on the side. Mm-hmm. And that quickly turned out not to be the case. And a big part of what changed when we realized that it was going to do well was we also realized that we had become the faces of the brand and that people mm-hmm. had to connect with us as individuals. And that was hard for us because neither of us were wired that way. That that has been part of this journey, but I also think it is what has allowed us To bring that same thing to our journalists in a way that is comfortable and doesn't feel demeaning because we feel the same things that they feel. It didn't come naturally to us to put ourselves out there as individuals rather than as people behind Hidden Compass and Hidden Compass being out there. That didn't come naturally to us. And we recognize that it doesn't come naturally to a lot of the wonderful folks that we work with. And at the same time, we realize that a lot of the wonderful folks that we work with are spectacular individuals who have amazing stories to share, who have had experiences that we can all learn from. And so we're in this position where we know what they're feeling, but we also know what they're capable of. And we get to help them bring that to the world in a slightly different way. Mm -hmm. And that's incredibly rewarding for me, certainly, and I think for both of us.
3: Uh, Yes, I would say for both of us. And, and there are two main elements at play here, really. I mean, we talk about humanizing journalists, and I don't know if the two of you have noticed, but humanity isn't perfect. No. <laughs> and so, exactly, exactly. You know, it's not about them being perfect, it's about them being a person. At Hidden Compass, we very much, we're kind of tongue in cheek in the personality of our brand, and we're very much like trying to take back certain words. And so, we call our journalists and our storytellers, heroes. And we do that purposefully. We do that to say a hero isn't somebody who's perfect. A hero is someone who's standing up for something they care about. Mm-hmm. And that's the second element here is that, you know, we tell our contributors, yes, it's about celebrating you, but also you have a story to tell. Literally, you published a story with us that is important. And because it's that hidden compass, it means we had the whole editorial discussion about right. what is contributing to the global conversation which means that it matters yep. and to invite these storytellers to to step up and say deforestation in Sumatra is something that is important and this is why I did a photo essay about it or right. disappearing languages and language diversity is important which is why I wrote a story about it we're all about celebrating
2: the the nerds we believe that everyone is a nerd about something so when people hear nerd they often think of very specific things but but we have had stories where the thing that is you know, that the author is nerding out about, it right, is the history of textile dye. Everyone's a nerd about something. And so these fascinations and these curiosities that have stories behind them that can teach us about all sorts of other things in the world have been a big part of the types of stories that we publish, right? It's, it's the stories that contribute to these global conversations. It's the stories that send people down rabbit holes of research. That was one of the great things that we discovered about our readers when we were able to talk to longtime readers as well as prospective readers is that folks would read a story and then they would go down their own rabbit holes of research because they were so fascinated by what they'd read. Yep. And that was a huge compliment. And it and it just reminded us, this is why we do what we do. And there are people out there who do want to be inspired by something that they don't even know exists yet.
0: Create beautiful books with Vellum. Create ebooks for every platform with Vellum. Kindle, Kobo, Apple Books, and more. Each specialized file will guide readers to buy your next book in their store of choice. For print, choose your trim size and Vellum does the rest, giving you a professional result. Vellum 3.0 features 24 styles with 16 all new designs. Each one allows for multiple configurations, giving you a new world of options for your books add a rich background behind the beginning of every chapter. You can even set the mood with white text on a dark background. Vellum comes with six illustrated backgrounds ready to use in your book, as well as a custom option where you provide your own. Also included in Vellum 3.0, new options for fonts, TikTok for social media, Size control for custom ornamental breaks and new trim sizes for your print books. Vellum. Create beautiful books. Whether you've written a novel, memoir, poetry, nonfiction, young adult, or children's book, you need a website to promote your work of art. PubSite is here to make that easy. PubSite allows every author, regardless of budget, to have a great looking professional website. This easy to use DIY website builder was developed specifically for books and authors. Whether you're an author of one book or 50, PubSite gives you the tools to build, design, and update your website pain free. Build your website with a 14 day free trial. Or hire PubSite to set up the website for you. Authors like Tom Clancy, Robin Cook, Janet Daly, and hundreds more use PubSite. Visit PubSite.com to get started today. That's P-U-B hyphen Started in the midst of the pandemic, the founder of Hydronique Hydration, a frontline healthcare worker, began developing constant headaches due to not being properly hydrated while on the job. Available drinks with all the necessary vitamins and minerals also came with a ton of sugar and caffeine. That's why he created Hydronique Hydration, sugar-free, keto-friendly, plant-based, antioxidant-rich electrolyte powder packets for daily use. They contain all the essential vitamins and minerals with a refreshing taste. Hydronique Hydration also contains elderberry, which has immune-boosting properties for support during this cold and flu season. Hydronique Hydration electrolyte powder packets can also fit in your bag or suitcase when traveling, if you can remember traveling. So... If you have trouble drinking healthily during your busy days in 2022, but want a sugar-free, keto-friendly vitamin drink, give Hydronique Hydration a try. Each pouch contains 30 electrolyte powder packets, perfect for a one-month supply. Visit the website, hydroniquehydration.com. That's hydration. Dot com, Or buy on Amazon where there is currently a ten dollar coupon for a one-month supply. Visit hydroniquehydration.com to learn more.
1: So I'm from Ohio and I don't live near any large or earthworks, but we have here in Ohio there's a system of earthworks that were discovered when white people showed up. And it's essentially at this point in time, they've been dubbed the Hopewell and Adena cultures. And those are the names of the white people that like discovered them. But essentially there was a prehistoric people here that moved around huge, massive amounts, hundreds of thousands of tons of dirt to make mounds and not just burial mounds. Like they made the serpent mound is probably the most famous one here in Ohio. That's what I'm a nerd about. I am a nerd about our earthworks in Ohio. And we literally like know nothing about them. Like basically when, when Europeans showed up, they were talking to the native Americans, like especially where I'm from, it would have been the Cherokee And they were like, hey, so what's up with all these earthworks? And and the Native Americans were were literally like,
2: dude, we have no idea.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Wow.
1: They were like, these have always been here. We don't know. Other people did it. It's It's funky. And like, they're just super, super old. And we literally know nothing uh, next Hmm. to nothing about these people and what these were used for. And when I tell people about the Adena and the Hopewell and the Earthworks, people are like, what the hell are you talking about? And I'm like, <laughs> no, it's this whole thing. It's like Egypt, but it's in Ohio. And they're like,
3: what? <laughs> Oh, that's amazing. I, yeah. You know, it just is so incredible to me how much we don't know. I love that you bring up the, this idea of discovery and exploration. It's, it's a thing we talk about a lot. And I think that there's this pervasive feeling that we've discovered most everything there is to discover and that the age of exploration is over. Mm-hmm. This is another thing that Savani and I fight back against. We're like, journalism is not dying and the age of exploration is not over. Yeah. And it's because of things like this, Mindy, these right. earthworks. Right. And also you brought up that, you know, there are these European explorers and these white explorers who come in and that that really represents the old age of exploration We're at a moment now where we are celebrating different kinds of voices. The age of exploration now is not just about being the first Westerner to set foot on top of a certain mountain. It's about frontiers that are ethical, communicating across cultures, across generations that are intellectual frontiers as well. And these questions, not just of what's out there, but what is our role here on this planet, if not in the universe? And these are huge, exciting questions where we can hear from different kinds of voices now in a way that we just didn't before. Right. I mean, exploration used to be about
2: conquering. And it used to be about being the first generally Westerner, generally white male Westerner, right. up in a mountain, or to plant a flag in a place in a where there were already plenty of people who, who right. had been there forever. And now we're at this moment, like Sabine said, where it's not about conquering. It's about understanding and it's about reckoning with the past of exploration and the fact that exploration used to be about exploitation. It used to be about, quote unquote, (laughs) discovering a place where millions of people already lived and then figuring out what you could take from it. And now it's about understanding and trying to learn from the people who are already there rather than coming in and trying to tell people how they should be living or how they should be protecting their environment or telling them what the thing is that they've been living with forever. It's about understanding and listening. And it's taken on these forms that aren't just physical. It's not about being the first to some place, right? It can also be just about going deeper rather than broader and about actually understanding the ecological consequences and the ethical consequences, the historical consequences. And there are all these types of exploration. And so, you know, when we talk about being an exploration driven media company and magazine, people often take that as, you know, physical exploration, right. it's science, it's these, and it is those things, but it's also all of these other things that are fascinating and inspiring. And like Sabine said, this is why we don't feel like the age of exploration is over. It's just different now.
1: Agreed entirely. I am very interested in the history of, Like literally where I live. People ask if you could live at any time or any place in history, where would you be? And I always say my own backyard, 1000 years ago. I think that would be Mm -hmm. amazing. Um, Because it was, it's a completely different place. I love what you're saying about exploration because yeah, I mean, I live in Ohio. I live very much in the middle of nowhere and there are so many things that I can learn in a, let's say two mile radius there's a piece of property down the road where there's a um a stream and it was used by I believe the Cherokee for their tanning they tanned their hides on that bank and mm-hmm. I'm always saying to myself I need to go down there and like look around and look for arrowheads and look for tools and do these things and you know I haven't done it yet there are so many things that are are just literally literally in my own backyard my house was built by a civil war soldier and I have come across so many things in the yard, just like digging or gardening or cutting up a dead tree and the roots come up and there's like, Oh, here's a horseshoe. And here's an old, plow, wow. Yeah. You know? And it's just yeah. like, yeah. it's amazing to me when you're speaking of depth and it's like, mm-hmm. you know, no, we're not talking about sailing off into the sunset. It's literally can be two feet under right.
2: your feet in your backyard. Right. It's so interesting that you mentioned the in your backyard aspect of it, right? Because that is another part of exploration. So you have to go far afield to these quote unquote exotic places. We published a story that I really enjoyed because it was about the Channel Islands off the coast of Santa Barbara in LA. And I, so I can literally see a Channel Island from my window. I'm based in Santa Barbara. And these islands are incredibly biodiverse. They were never connected to the mainland. And so Uh, Animals have developed and, and evolved there somewhat independently. And it's referred to often as the Galapagos of the U.S. We published a story by a gentleman named Alex Krowiak, who's a naturalist, who had spent time guiding on these islands and photographing. It was a beautiful photo feature. He's a wonderful photographer as well. But what had been missing in all of these stories about conservation successes on these islands has been the human history that had largely been overlooked. These are islands that are located right off the coast of some of the most populated parts of the country. And people who live within eyesight of them largely don't know the history of them. And they're right here and they are fascinating. There are these islands where the oldest dated skeleton in the Americas that was found there. You know, I grew up in this area and I'm familiar with the islands. I learned a ton in editing that story but also, I know so many people who have no idea that that is just right off the shore. So it's great when we can kind of reframe what exploration could be and show that it really is valuable, but it's also accessible to mm-hmm, everyone yes. because it doesn't require you to spend a ton of money and travel around the globe. It really could be
3: your actual backyard. This is the power of storytellers, too. Like right. Mindy, you sharing. All of these incredible historical aspects of where you live in Ohio, and Mm -hmm. Alex, who's writing about the Channel Islands, storytellers—they're so often the thread that connects us to our own backyards, back to previous eras, to each other. I mean, I am such a believer in the power of storytelling, and my background is actually in environmental science. I had this moment when I was in college. I was working with indigenous subsistence farmers in the rural Andes. Uh, This is 2008. And I was putting together a scientific report uh, that never got published, actually, because the country fell into a state of civil unrest. The wonderful outcome of that is that I ended up being stranded in these remote rolling hills at 14,000 feet of elevation with a couple of colleagues and a Spanish Quechua translator. Oh wow. And I'm with people who don't use the western calendar, who live by oral traditions that have been passed down for hundreds of generations, you know, roughly 400 generations, which goes back to the advent of Andean agriculture, yeah, thousands of years ago. And I had this moment of, oh my gosh, the power of these oral traditions, the power of these stories that convey what we as a people, as a species, are learning, have learned, have yet to learn. Stories are how we have that global conversation, but also intergenerational conversations. Yes they are our keys to interpreting the universe, to conveying knowledge and expression, to connecting with our peers and ancestors. I have goosebumps as I'm saying this right now because I cannot believe that I get to spend my life working with storytellers. I can't imagine anything else I would rather do.
1: I agree. I love being one. And I love thinking narratively, which is just how my brain functions and always has. So I live in a, like I said, a really old house. I think it was built in 1857. And everybody was like, you are crazy to buy this house and to want to live in a house that is this old. And I'm like, no, I'm classy. I'm like, this is, (laughs) this is amazing. Like my house has history. If you go Mm -hmm. down in the basement, the beams are actually, you know, they were cut by hand. There's hatchet marks and you know, everything about that matters. And you know, that all goes back to the 15 second attention grabbing and everything that has, I feel very little substance. I feel that way sometimes about architecture. I can have that reaction to architecture and uh, I need my house to matter. (laughs) I just, (laughs) I researched the house when I bought it. And, um, you know, I know the name of the soldier that built it and I actually found his grave. And like, I went to his grave and I was like, Hey man, like, thanks for building my house. I love my house. You know? Wow. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to take care of it for you. That matters to me because it is all story. And we are all people populating the stories, no matter how old they are or where they happen.
2: Well, and storytelling, too, it's about connection. It's about that history. But for me, I also always look at it as storytelling is also about advocacy. So Sabine's background is environmental science. Mine is varied, but I was a federal public defender. Every career I have ever had. I mean, so I've been a lawyer. I've been a teacher. I have always come back to story. Yeah. Everything's about story. And it's how we actually make changes in the world, the important changes and the, the detrimental ones too. It's all about story. And so when I look at what we do, and when I look at what I used to do as a lawyer, it was always about telling the story as a form of advocacy. And this is something that I have carried over in, you know, in my Life that's connected to Hidden Compass. I teach these storytelling for social justice workshops to aspiring public interest attorneys and things like that. But it's also something that gets carried over in the stories that we publish. I mean, we maintain journalistic integrity, we fact check every story thoroughly. But there are stories that are illuminating conservation efforts or the need for conservation or helping us think about. Things In new ways, there was a, a beautiful story that actually was separate from all of the conservation type things that we publish that was written by a woman, Shireen Sherrard, who is a Black professor, chair of English and literature at uh, Santa Clara University. And she wrote about her experience surfing for the first time in Hawaii and tied it in with her experience as a Black woman dealing with and managing risk Mm -hmm. in just day-to-day life. And so here was the opportunity to make people think about things in a new way, in a way that might affect how they think about certain social issues that are currently at the forefront. And it's so important to me that we get to use story to not just make (laughs) those connections with people, because that is incredibly important but also to show people the world in which we live and the world in which we want to live.
3: I'm gonna jump in and showcase Hidden Compass fact-checking in action. Shereen Sherrard is the chair of the English department at Pomona College.
0: She teaches
3: (laughs) African-American and Caribbean literature. We got it right. Well, that matters.
1: (laughs) So last thing, why don't you let listeners know where they can find Hidden Compass and some of your other efforts that are tied into Hidden Compass and some
2: of the stories that you're most excited about recently. Sure. We're at hiddencompass.net. So pretty easy to find us on the internet. On our website, you'll find information about the Alliance, which we, I think, mentioned pretty briefly earlier in this conversation. But the Alliance is our modern society of exploration. And we launched it at the end of last year. It is an opportunity for people who wanna take the next step and connect with a community of folks who not only wanna support exploration, but who wanna have a say in what modern day exploration looks like, and who also wanna join us in standing up for the values that, that we believe in, which is that journalism, science, history, and hope are worth protecting. And so the Alliance gives folks access to our storytellers, We'll be funding larger expeditions and our Alliance members will get to help us choose the ones that we fund. They will get to interact with folks who are on those expeditions and to learn what goes into a big endeavor like that. It's our effort to build the community around exploration.
3: Definitely go and check that out. And then in terms of stories that we would point you to, it's so hard to choose, but our latest issue, so every issue publishes a theme and our latest issue, the theme was layered exposures. You should jump into that one there are fundraising campaigns that are active for all five of the storytellers so you can contribute to support each of them directly there is a story by a writer and filmmaker named paul Fisher about these palestinian twins who are obsessed um, with the promise of the movies but grew up in a place where all of the cinemas were shut down and they have some possible dream that they fight through and it's about the history and the violence of that era Um, And also the hope and the amazing things that can come out of that place. There's an incredible photo feature by documentarian Eric Dusenbury in Musella, Georgia, where he's inspired by these Depression-era portraits by this iconic photographer, Dorothea Lange. And he takes a large format camera, very old school, and he sets off to capture modern agrarian life um and that's in our time travel department so it's you know inspired by depression era photography and then bringing modern photography in but with you know older technology there's this story about the architecture in vietnam i mean just go and read the entire issue at this point <laughs> i'm going to tell you all of it um and poke around and see what you love because we have things for all kinds of nerds Definitely. and we hope you discover something that you didn't know existed but that fascinates you.
0: Vellum, it just works. Best-selling indie author Alex Lydell, whose book Enemy Contact an Enemies to Lovers Romantic Suspense hit number 25 in the Amazon paid Kindle store has this to say about Vellum. There are always a ton of hang-ups in the publishing process, from the printer running out of ink at just the wrong moment to Amazon rejecting margins, but Vellum has been one program I can depend on. It formats my manuscripts quickly, professionally, and, most importantly, in a way that never gets rejected by any online retailers. Visit www.trivellum.com forward slash pants to learn more that's try v-e-l-l-u-m dot com forward slash pants vellum it just works writer writer pants on fire is produced by mindy mcginnis music by jack corbel Don't forget to check out the blog for additional interviews, writing advice, and publication tips at writerwriterpantsonfire.com. If the blog or podcast have been helpful to you, or if you just enjoy listening, please consider donating. Visit writerwriterpantsonfire.com and click support the blog and podcast in the sidebar.